BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Earlier this year in June, there is a change in leadership at NOAA. Appointed by President Joe Biden, our next guest has spent decades in atmospheric sciences. Today, we are joined by the 11th and current NOAA Administrator, Dr. Rick Spinrad. Dr. Spinrad is going to share with us how his first few months have gone and what he sees as goals for the future. Uh, Dr. Spinrad, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It is my pleasure. Delighted to be with, uh, with you here today. Thanks. Yeah, this is this is always a treat for me whenever I get to interview really interesting and important people like Dr. Spinrad. I, I know have known him for a while, so if I slip and call him Rick every now and then, please forgive me. But uh, he is really uh, a, a key stakeholder in the weather, climate, water enterprise, and so it's an honor to have have him here. I have to start with the question I start with every guest, Rick. Uh, and maybe I have to modify it some because I know your background and I'll share it with the, the listeners soon. Are you a weather geek? And if so, how'd you become one? Or perhaps maybe you're an ocean geek. Uh, explain. Yeah. Thank, well, first of all, let me say um, I would be insulted if you didn't call me Rick, as long as I can call you Marshall. Cause yeah, absolutely we've known each other so long. So yeah, sure. um, yeah I, I, I think of myself as an earth system geek and it, it's really, you know, that might sound geeky in itself, but uh, early on in my career, I was taught that the Earth system really is highly interactive between the ocean and the atmosphere and the ice and the living marine systems and living land systems. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time early in my career trying to work what I would say transdisciplinarily, uh, not just multidisciplinarily. And so uh, early on as a grad student, I recognized I couldn't do the things I wanted to do as a card-carrying oceanographer without a pretty firm understanding of what was happening in the atmosphere above the ocean. And so I'm definitely a geek. Uh, we can quibble over whether I'm a weather geek or an ocean geek. I like to think of myself as an Earth system geek. Yeah, I, and, you know, I cut my teeth in the NASA world, too, where Earth system science was critical. Uh, let me give you a little background on Dr. Spinrad for those that are not familiar with him. He is uh, was appointed the 11th NOAA administrator uh, on June 22nd, uh, 2021. Before his appointment at NOAA, Dr. Spinrad was a professor of oceanography and senior advisor to the vice president of research at Oregon State University. He is also a recipient of the presidential rank awards from President Bush and President Obama. He's a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, uh, and he has held positions in the Office of Naval Research and Naval Meteorology and Oceanography Command, he received his BA in Earth and Planetary Sciences from Johns Hopkins University and an MS and PhD in Oceanography from Oregon State. Or is that Ohio State? I just says OSU in my notes. It's Oregon State. That's, we, that's what I that's the OSU back back on the West Coast. The real OSU for the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And, and and you also spent some time previously in NOAA, I believe, as, as chief scientist, as well, mm -hmm. as I recall. Um, I want to get into all of that a bit, bit later. Uh, 
in your professional career, you've actually had many stops along the way. Could you provide a timeline? Because I think it's important for look, NOAA is the key agency for weather, climate and water in this country. And so we are speaking with the person that will lead that agency going forward. So Rick, give us a timeline of your career and sort of how it sort of set you up to lead NOAA. Yeah, thanks for that. The um I should start by saying that I remember when NOAA was created some 50 years ago. That's because I'm an old guy. And <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, a lot of people described NOAA as the wet NASA, which was a convenient moniker for a lot of people because they were familiar with what NASA does. But it's very different, obviously, from NASA. And and I looked at that as really an interesting place that at the time when I was a teenager, I thought, boy, it would be kind of cool to work in a place like NOAA. So I started down the traditional academic path, finished my graduate degree, did a postdoc. And then some quirky little things happened in my career. One was I was asked if I wanted to help with a startup company. Of course, back then we didn't call them startups. It was a spinoff of the research we were doing at Oregon State. And it was a manufacturing firm. We were manufacturing state-of-the-art oceanographic sensors. So I did that for a few years and and realized it was kind of interesting, gave me a business perspective that I never thought I'd have before. And then I was invited to come work for the federal government as program manager with the Navy at the Office of Naval Research. Again, did that all the time thinking I would follow the traditional academic career, going back to academia and and becoming a a research-oriented professor. And probably about the third year of my career as a program manager, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go back to academia, or was I going to work in this program management arena? And I, I had to do some serious self-reflection. And the reflection I did was that I felt, I felt I was a good researcher, but I didn't feel like I was the best by any means. But I had a real passion for managing programs because I, I quite honestly liked the idea of being able to direct where the research was going. And the stuff we were doing at Navy was really, really exciting. Uh, and I really enjoyed the people I work with. So I made a career decision then to stay in program management. I was fortunate enough to get promoted to higher and higher levels of oversight of program management. And then um, finished what I thought was a career after working for Navy. I moved over to NOAA. Oh, by the way, in the middle of that, I spent four years working for a, an advocacy group, an non-governmental organization that was at basically the lobby for the oceanographic community. And I bring these all up, Marshall, because these were all like degree programs for me. They gave me some experience, perspective. I didn't know how Congress worked, but after spending four years working for a lobbying organization, basically an advocacy group, I learned that. I didn't know anything about business, but if you are the president of a small business, you learn a lot about uh, business. Um, and then retired from the federal government in 2010 to go back to academia and, and oversee research programs at a tier one research university. And then my good friend, Kathy Sullivan, was the NOAA uh, administrator back in the Obama administration. Um, and she nominated me to be the chief scientist of the agency, a position that had gone unfilled for some 18 years. And I'd never held a political position, and I kind of thought, I I felt a little bit like an anti-car collector. I've got one of everything except that. I don't have a a political position. And and I'm, 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 you know, being a little bit glib about it, but the point is, at that point, I was also curious about how do we take all this great science and translate it into policy? And if you remember at the time, there was a lot of controversy around 
how politicians were, dare I say, manipulating or using science. Um, and, and I just felt like this, I, I felt a sense of service. I felt I owed it to some extent to uh, the country, uh, to myself, to try to help with the uh, interpretation of science for policy. So I worked for Kathy as chief scientist for uh, about three years. And went back, I retired the second time and went back to academia, academia as an advisor at that point uh, at Oregon State University. And then uh, stayed involved with the campaigns in the 2020 election. And after President Biden was elected, uh, I ended up getting a call again. Would I be interested in uh, putting my name in the hat for consideration for this job? And it was one of those cases where you you sit back and think, gosh, I'm, I'm really kind of enjoying retirement here, but I also do think there's some things we could do. And so I said, here's the things I think we could do. If this resonates with the new administration and and, and you think I can pass muster, I'd be happy to to put my hat, my name in the ring in the <laughs> in consideration for this job. And here I am. That's how it played out. Yeah. And, and I, I remember, I think, you know, I, I served on the NOAA Science Advisory Board, the SAB, during Kathy Sullivan's tenure, at least part of it. And I think that's where I first uh, really uh, got to know you. And then, of course, our time overlapping on, I guess, council at AMS as well. Uh, right. So you, you just heard a really nice background on Dr. Spinrad. I mean, he has all all the credentials to lead uh, this agency and it's an important agency. Uh, and, and, and it really is not just the science agency. You do have to have some of the background that I think you bring to the table. Um, what would you say is your first 100 days assessment so far, uh, being at NOAA? Um, explosive, um, in the best meaning of the word, um, we, we, the administration, I, I should point out, first of all, NOAA is an agency of 12,000 federal employees and, and an almost equal number of contractors. So like a large ship at sea, it's got a lot of momentum with some extraordinary workers, Nobel laureates, plural, uh, leading state-of-the-art capabilities. So as a new administration comes in, you look at the, the wonderful ingredients and capabilities that you've got on the table and you say, how do we take this to do the things that this administration wants to do. And I would argue that we've sort of exploded out of the gates, certainly in terms of climate products and services, in terms of an emphasis on uh, equity, not just on delivery of these products and services, but also in the development of these products and services. And, and, and I hope we get a chance to talk a little bit more about that in this conversation. And then, you know, the other thing, and, and I shared this with Secretary Raimondo when she interviewed me back in the spring is I actually believe there's extraordinary potential in NOAA's sitting inside the Department of Commerce. And I believe there is a rich, rich potential right now to build out a value-added services economy around weather, water, climate products and services, uh, something that certainly the commercial weather services, the Weather Channel and others have have uh, been involved with for 40 or 50 years. But I think we can put that on steroids. And so being in the Department of Commerce, where I can talk with uh, the Economic Development Administration and other bureaus has given us an opportunity to come out of the out of the gate, you know, full speed and do any number of things. And, and I can elaborate with some specifics as to what's happened, but it's just been a blast to uh, to hit the ground running here. 
Well, and that, that's the perspective that I have as well. I mean, and by the way, I want to commend you for the new climate.gov website that was, I guess, revamped and, and sort of reintroduced to the world. I think it's amazing. And so I 900,000 users per month. Oh, I, and, and, and it should be, and even more because I, I, it's always been where I point people to, if they say, well, where can I go for good information on climate, climate education, where things are, what's happening. I always pointed people to that site anyhow, but now it's even better. And so I, again, I, I know that's something that, that, you know, it's, that has happened under sort of your first, uh, a few days there. And so I just want to commend you for that. I I actually would, Rick, I would like to sort of hear about some of those specifics that you mentioned, because I think it's important for our listeners to understand the sort of level of detail uh, of some of these uh, sort of initiatives that you you mentioned. So we got what, uh, five, six hours for me to do that? (laughs) Give us your top two. Or one of you. Oh, wow. That's Um, that's hard because I don't want to offend someone that doesn't feel this their top two. Well, give us a couple of things. I'll give you a couple. And what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll fly by at supersonic speed, if you will, just to give you a sense. Because Yeah, I just want to kind of a sample for the listeners because I think they know about the National Weather Service and the Fisheries and Ocean Service, but sort of how all of this interplays, I think, would be insightful for them. And, and you just touched on, I mean, Noah has always been a little bit of the blind man and the elephant for, for people when we talk with them, because some people know Noah for fisheries, some people know Noah for navigational charts, some people know Noah for the weather service. So, yeah, okay, so quickly going through, you talked about the, the climate.gov website. The only thing I'll add to that, Marshall, is, is climate.gov. It's not climate.noaa.gov. And so it is a central focal point for bringing all the great stuff going on in the federal government in products and services and data and research. Um, I was part of the COP26 uh, climate conference just last month in Glasgow and participated in um, a half a dozen forums, including moderating a session with uh, President Obama and the prime minister of uh, Fiji and other representatives talking about how the U.S. can help contribute to uh, adaptation uh, efforts around the world and and leading a dialogue on President Biden's new initiatives on adaptation. Uh, We're building out uh, whole new opportunities for new private sector activities. I've probably had um, 20 different discussions with many of these startups, the companies that through entrepreneurship or venture capital are providing these extraordinary value-added products for climate services. Um, And so in the spirit of stimulating that, you know, we've talked with the retail. So we've conducted listening sessions with the retail sector, with the reinsurance industry. I've begun dialogues with what I call the seemingly disparate groups, the American Medical Association, the National Association of Realtors, uh, the retail industry, the uh, Air Conditioning Engineers Association. Um, You know, then let's talk about some of the the real specific things. As you well know, Marshall, from your own professional activities, we put a lot of effort into improving our forecast capabilities. And if you look at this hurricane season, the one, incidentally, I think it's, it's, symbolic that we are doing this conversation on what is arguably the official end of hurricane season, the third most active hurricane season we've ever had. It's the first time, incidentally, that we've run through the full list of named hurricanes two years in a row. Right. So, uh, but, but in terms of our capabilities, we've seen dramatic improvements in track and intensity forecasts on the hurricanes. The, the error in track forecasts down we're down uh, between 10 and 20 miles compared to the five-year average. 
average over the previous five years. That What does that mean to people? It means that cone of uncertainty that you see when that hurricane's bearing down on, on wherever it may be bearing down is now that much more accurate. Um, a couple other things. We are working aggressively to meet the administration's agenda to build 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, which means working with our colleagues at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to make sure we're balancing our conservation responsibilities with the build-out of renewable energy. Uh, we designated a new national marine sanctuary up in Wisconsin uh, about a month ago, and we've started the initiation of another, started initiating another marine sanctuary, the Shumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary in California. Just, just a couple other things. We're holding climate and equity roundtables. So I talked about equity, serving vulnerable communities. We've done eight of these roundtables around the country, talking about everything from extreme heat in the Southwest to flooding in the Mississippi River Basin. And from an organizational standpoint, this may, might, might sound uh, really sort of bureaucratically geeky. We've set up at NOAA, a NOAA Climate Council. It reports directly to me. And I bring that up because I go back to that comment about the blind man and the elephant. People look at NOAA and say, oh, it's fish, it's weather, it's navigational charts, it's this and that. We do climate in every part. We do climate research, outreach, engagement, uh, Op, uh, operational activities throughout NOAA. And so we needed to have a place where we could have the dialogue about priorities and focus of program. And so we've created a NOAA Climate Council that reports to me. There's only two councils that report to me. One is the sort of business council, if you will, which we call our executive council and the climate council now. And just to give the audience a sense of so what? We are just uh, two weeks ago when President Biden signed the infrastructure bill, we ended up receiving $3 billion, almost three, $2.96 billion of additional resources over the next five years. A lot of that is oriented toward climate products and services and jobs. How do we spend it? So I needed to have a body that I could sit down with. So I could talk to the head of the weather service, the head of the ocean service, the head of our satellites and data information service and say, how do we want to prioritize this investment? So we had to have that council. And then, you know, again, focusing on the people in the agency, the issues of equity. I'll be blunt. Too much of our agency looks like me. Our agency is 67 percent. Uh, male and 80% white. And that's not what the American population looks like. So we've, we've begun a campaign internally, which we call We Are NOAA, where we reach out to employee resource groups. We talk with uh, specific components of the uh, agency about what sorts of training, what sorts of recruitment and retention programs we ought to build. And that's really, really important because without the people, we can have all the computers, satellites, ships, aircraft, doesn't make any difference. We can't get the product set without the people. Uh, sorry, that was longer, more than two, but I want to make sure you had a sense of the cross-decking cross of activities. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Rick Spinrad, uh, the NOAA administrator, uh, recently appointed by President O'Biden, and, and as you've heard so far, it has hit the ground running. Um, at your core, Rick, I know you do uh, come from a background that's more oceans, and uh, I hear the term blue economy at times. What is the blue economy and sort of from your perspective and Noah's perspective, why is it important? So what you're going to hear a lot from me is a discussion about what I call the new blue economy. So let me take your question, Marshall, about the blue economy and say that the blue economy, as we've talked about it for a long time, is what people would imagine it is. It's commercial shipping. It's oil and gas. It's um, national security. It's uh, coastal resilience as reflected in beach nourishment, for example. It's the things that we've been doing in the maritime community. If you go to your favorite coastal town, wherever you may live, and look at what's driving that economy, that is the blue economy. And it's been around for centuries, right? I mean, there was there was commercial shipping and commercial fishing back when this country started over 250 years ago. Um, the new blue economy, is the economy based on data, information, and knowledge. And the best way, I think, especially since we're on weather geeks, the best way to think about this is the commercial weather enterprise is made possible by the data and model output and information that the federal government provides that can then be tailored to the needs of a particular clientele. It's an extraordinary... Extraordinary concept, and there were some real pioneers uh, over the last 40, 50 years who were involved in that. In the oceans community, we did, we haven't had that sort of capability. We haven't had the observations. We, we, we've been a data depauperate community, but not anymore. We've got through the Global Ocean Observing System and the Integrated Ocean Observing System here at NOAA, we're now bringing in petabytes of uh, data about the oceans. And so how do you take the data from the oceans convert it to commercial opportunities for new business development. That's the new economy. Yeah, that that's that's important. And again, I think your contextualization of uh, NOAA, you, people have often asked me, why is NOAA in commerce? And I, I think you've articulated some very clear reasons why that 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 is a reasonable home for NOAA. I mean, I know during my time in the government, I've all often heard conversations about reorganizations of the science agencies into their own department of science and those types of things. But clearly there's a connection between uh, the blue economy, uh, weather, uh, fisheries, and, and the broader, what I call kitchen table issues of people's lives here in the, in the U.S. And one of the things, Weather Geeks listeners, I hope you see and hear and pick up from Dr. Uh, Spinrad is he kind of gets the so what aspect of all of this. You know, one of the things that can often get lost in our science and policy discussions is sort of the inside the beltway lingo and the buzzwords of the day and, and priorities. But I hope I hope you really see how Rick is delivering the so what that matters to all of us as citizens. So I really appreciate that. Now, you know, I want to stay with climate for a second because you did mention this earlier that you were at COP26. Uh, what what or participate? What are your sort of initial thoughts and reactions to what came from COP twenty six? Yeah, they. Um, I'm pleased uh, in terms of how the U.S. was perceived. I'm I'm really pleased with how we as a nation were able to get our message across 
Uh, for the listeners who uh, weren't following some of the specifics, we had President Biden there. We had 12 cabinet secretaries. We had the head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, Samantha Power at USAID. We had myself, the head of NOAA, um, all taking an active role. There was also a pretty strong congressional delegation there. Um, I have... Uh, I had the opportunity to lead a number of discussions on uh, climate impacts on health, on needs for adaptation. I would say some of the sort of bumper sticker takeaways, if you will, were uh, that the U.S. is back strongly um, and, the, and the global community is glad to see that, but they're, I would say they're cautiously optimistic. They want to make sure that this is a sustained engagement. They appreciate the commitments that are being made. I have to be honest and say I think expectations were high with respect to global investments toward the 1.5 degree goal, limited warming of the uh, of the uh, Earth to 1.5 degree C. Um, and the expectations were not fully fulfilled, but we're on the right track. I believe. The other thing I would say is I was delighted to see an increased emphasis on the adaptation agenda. So a lot of time and effort has been spent on mitigation, decarbonizing. How do we get to renewables? How do we all start driving electric vehicles? How do we reduce consumption of fossil fuels? And that's great. But I think your reader, your audience knows that if we went to zero uh, emissions tomorrow, we'd still be dealing with things like sea level rise for decades, if not century. And so consequently, we need to adapt. So there was a lot of focus on adaptation at COP26. Some of it took the form of uh, frustration, especially on the part of the small island developing states, who basically said, we are drowning. Um, the other thing I would say was that there was an enhanced attention to the role of the oceans not just in terms of the oceans being impacted by climate change, but also the ocean's role as potentially helping to mitigate a lot of blue carbon discussion. How can we use the natural resources of the ocean to help reduce atmospheric carbon dioxide, for example? How can we build out uh, natural defenses against climate change? And what role can the ocean play in that regard? So I would say the, the emphasis on adaptation the cautious optimism about the U.S. re-engagement uh, in the global climate change arena uh, and the uh, focus on the role of oceans were very, very positive outcomes, COP26. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back for our final segment of the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Rick Spinrad, who is a longtime colleague, but is also the, the new head of NOAA, uh, which is the science agency and operational agency, too, for weather, climate, fisheries, and so forth. A critical agency, uh, an agency that I, you know, that houses the National Weather Service. And this is where I just to kind of sort of give you a, a tip off of where I'm going. I want to spend this last segment, since this is Weather Geeks, really focus more on the weather side. 
Uh, so a couple of sort of quick fire questions uh, for you, Rick. One, um, Louis Uccellini, longtime National Weather Service director, uh, I, I recently announced uh, the, his retirement. Uh, he has been a stalwart in National Weather Service and NOAA for many years, leading the National Center for Environmental Prediction before National Weather Service, uh, helping usher in the weather-ready nation and so forth. So a shout out to Louis. I know we both uh, appreciate his service. Uh, where do you, as the NOAA administrator and essentially the, 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 the boss for the National Weather Service, uh, where do you see sort of the key steps forward within the National Weather Service for advancing weather prediction, observation, and so forth. I mean, obviously, we're in the midst of uh, the Weather Ready Nation initiative. Uh, we've, we have phased array. I'm sorry, we have polarization radar. We, we're moving to phased array radar because I just served on an NSSL review panel. Uh, we've got the satellite program robust and so forth. So what's your, what's your view of the, the future of the National Weather Service in the zero to five-year time frame? Yeah, thanks for that. And and first, let me just make a personal comment, if I can. Can uh, the loss of Louis as the weather service director is a big, big loss. Louis leaves big shoes to fill. I've had the pleasure of uh, knowing Louis and working with him for, uh, gosh, about twenty years now, going back to when I was working for the Navy. Um, so, so my plea to your audience is: make my job hard. Give me some great names. Uh, help uh, suggest and nominate folks. The the uh, ad, the vacancy announcement is on the streets right now because um, it's going to be a tough job to fill. To fill. Um, and it, so, the short answer is to take a lot of what Louis and his team have been doing um, and propel it forward. And we we're getting some help too. You know, the infrastructure bill that I just alluded to earlier, it's giving us some resources for things like observational capability, high performance computing, model build out. I'm, I'm gonna start though with uh, a piece of this that is uh, the people. And I learned a long time ago, I was giving a talk when I was the head of research at NOAA. I think it was at an AMS conference. And I said, I went on and on about all the advances we're trying to do in research on, on uh, observations and computing and data assimilation. And somebody in the back of the room said, yeah, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have the forecaster there who knows how to use this. And so uh, part of the answer to your question is making sure that we have uh, are recruiting and retaining the best and the brightest and the most diverse and uh, broadly um, engaged workforce that we can in the weather service. And this is especially true because I think the demands on the weather service are only going to increase in, diverse, in terms of diversification of products and services. So uh, I, it would go, it would be wrong of me not to start with the human resource that we are focused on. And, and oh, by the way, that means taking advantage of some of the existing programs we've got, like the, uh, uh, the CSCs where we work with historically black colleges and universities and minority, minority serving institutions to bring in new, young, fresh, brilliant minds into not just the weather service, but NOAA writ large. So that the people is part of it. Uh, the other part, uh, and you started to allude to it when you when you briefly mentioned phased array, is the observational capabilities. So we are looking at um, improving and expanding the observational capabilities. I, I think you might know from your service on our science advisory board that I am perhaps a little fanatical about the potential for phased array radar. Yes, I do recall that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it comes back to my days working for Navy, where we saw it used on board the Aegis-class vessels as a, as a potentially very effective tool for weather at sea. 
Um, there are a lot of kinks to be knocked out and ironed out with respect to the use of phased array. But, you know, we're looking at an end of life for the traditional WSR-88B radars that we've got at 122 uh, uh, stations around the country. And so part of what I'm looking at in terms of infusions of large resources is can we accelerate some of the new technology that's coming in? We've also got new technology on our remote sensing platform. So I was delighted I wasn't delighted for the fires and the smoke that we had this last summer, but I was delighted when the first meeting I attended with the president, President Biden, first words out of his mouth were about the lightning mapper. Um, and it's really? those kinds of technologies. You know, you think about how, how much we can do in terms of fighting fires if we've got the early warnings from high resolution lightning mappers uh, on uh, satellites overhead. The use of uncrewed vehicles, autonomous uh, vehicles, uh, is another exciting. Uh, um, observational development. Uh, the other thing I've got to say is our capability to assimilate data and to incorporate into next generation uh, global forecast system. I think uh, from the discussions you've had on this show with people like Neil Jacobs, you know what we're trying to do in the Earth Prediction Innovation Center, the EPIC project. So there's a data, there's an observations, a data, data assimilation, modeling component, and let's not forget, that's all great. And you could have the best forecast product that your forecast that your meteorologist at the at the weather forecast office has developed. But if you don't get it into the hands of the decision makers, then you haven't finished the job. So we're also looking at all sorts of things in terms of national blend of models so that we have consistency of forecast product as you move from one WF weather forecast office to another. We're also looking at making sure that we've got robust communication uh, channels. We've had some problems with outages and delays in those communications over the last few years. I'm delighted to say that in this last year, the Weather Service achieved a more than 98% uh, network availability. We got to get that even higher, in my opinion. And you know, there are other things that we're using. We're, lo we're looking at backups for the weather NWS chat service, the, the uh, outages we have with NWS chat. Can we use a, an off-the-shelf product like Slack to fulfill those needs as well? So, it, you know, in this short time that I have here, what I'm trying to convey is it's a full-spectrum approach. There's also a philosophical component. Um, I think you know, and, and I'm sure when Louis's been on your show, he's talked about impact-based decision support services, IDSS. It's an extraordinary idea. Just last month, uh, uh, Louis incorporated that into the Weather Service mission. And, and for the readers who are not familiar with it, think of it this way, real briefly. Toward the end of this last hurricane season, we had two hurricanes, two somewhat similar to meteorologically hurricanes. One was Ida and one was Sam. Sam, the track of Sam was basically up the middle of the Atlantic. I won't say it didn't have impact because if you were on a ship in its path, it had impact. But when you look at impact-based decision support, where are you going to put your human resources, computational resources, your, your money? You're going to put it on a Hurricane Ida where the impact on coastal communities, as we know from Ida, throughout the whole eastern seaboard is extraordinary. I, Ida, the estimates are still piling up, but it looks like Ida was a 60 billion with a B uh, damage uh, storm, one of the top five most costly storms ever. So this concept of impact-based decision support applied across the board 
to weather service products and services, and I would argue to NOAA products and services, is another thing you're going to see more of as we move down the line. And then, you know, the last part is one of the things I really liked uh, uh, that Louis developed was the uh, the weather ready nation concept and the ambassadors in that concept. And as you travel around the country now on a side road, you'll pass a little sign as you enter a town that says we are weather ready community. And and it means something. It means they've raised awareness. They know where to go to get their watches and warnings. They know what a watch is and what a warning is, and they know how to act accordingly. So we're going to work on that component uh, as well, expanding the, expanding the services, enhancing the workforce, and improving our observational modeling and dissemination capabilities. Yeah, and, and I, I really appreciate that that deep dive because, you know, I think for, particularly for this, this audience, um, I, I think they're familiar with a lot of what you said, but just don't have a sense of how it's all integrated. And, you know, as we see these increasing compound events, you know, you mentioned Ida and there are many others that I could have mentioned as well. Uh, I think it ramps up the challenge of predicting prediction and observation, which I think Noah uh, is really stepping to the plate with this, as you just noted. Uh, another area, you know, that I, I think you alluded to as well, uh, some uh, is the sort of getting the message over the hump. I mean, if you got you could have the best radar observation or the best satellite observation or the best model forecast, but if it's not conveyed in a way to decision makers, stakeholders, and even just the public, you'll still have the, well, we didn't know, or it came without warning narrative out there. Uh, and so I think that's why, you know, the increasing social sciences engagement uh, as well. What, Can I make a quick comment about that? Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I had a very interesting discussion in one of these uh, climate and equity roundtables that I alluded to earlier, where somebody, and I can't remember who it was, it was a, it was a local community political official said something like, well, you need to tell us if this is like a Katrina or if it's more like a Dennis or if it's, a, and I realized, you know, that's what we need to hear is, it, it, I come from the Northeast. And if somebody said to me, we got a storm and it's going to be like Sandy. Okay, I know what I need to do. But if you tell me, well, this is a combined nor'easter with a potential tropical cyclone development into a Cat 3 hurricane, you know, I'm not sure what to do with that as a, as a public citizen. So there are some lessons we need to learn about how the public interprets these. If, if you tell people, you know, older folks in the New Orleans area, well, this is another Camille, they're going to know what they need to do. They're going to know what the potential is. But if you say this is a, a Cat 4 potential in, uh, um acceleration of a cat five, you know, they might think, well, I survived a cat four last year, so I'm not sure what the problem is, but tell them it's like a Camille. They're going to say, okay, I know what I need to do. It, just yeah. an interesting observation. I thought I'd share it. Yeah, absolutely. The I, analog storm model is uh, uh, you know, really a, a clear example of how people, and you know, it's interesting. I was on a, on something with uh, former FEMA director, Craig Fugate, and you know, he, we were talking about even direct language. I think that the National Weather Service used uh, for Laura, Hurricane Laura last season, and they were like potentially life-threatening storm yes. surge. No. And there were people that criticized that language, but I thought, and Craig agreed. He's like, that's exactly, I mean, I think the more candid you can be with people, the more, more they act. And so I think that's kind of what you're hitting at as well. And, and that was exactly what went through the Weather Service Many years ago, I want to say about 20 years ago, when we went from the Fujita scale for tornadoes to the enhanced Fujita. So now, of course, if you live in the in Oklahoma or Alabama and you get an EF3 warning, 
you know what that means. Now, most people probably don't understand the difference between an F3 and an EF3, but the enhanced Fujita was about the potential damage. So that same tornado that might go through an, an empty plane and not create a lot of damage, but if it goes through downtown Tulsa, is going to cause extensive damage, now gets categorized in this enhanced Fujita scale, which takes into account the potential damage and impact. And that's the impact-based decision support concept at work as well. Rick, Rick, I have one last question and then we have to go. I mean, I, I knew I would be able to talk to you all day if we could, but I know your time is valuable and thank you uh, for taking the time. It gets back to this area idea that you talked about with diversity and workforce, because I think that's something that's key. Uh, and I, I know that there are efforts on the table. Um, but, you know, I know the Biden administration is very keen on this idea of equity and diversity. And I know there are studies that show that extreme weather and climate are disproportionately affecting communities. And, and you and I both know of the, the challenges in sort of the workforce right now. You, you mentioned it with your own statistics earlier. I mean, how do, how do we move? I mean, I, I know there are things that we all have done in our organizations and we tap into the minority serving and HBCU communities and so forth. But how do we really, I mean, how do we out of the box move the needle on this? Do you have, have any thoughts? Yeah, I do, because I've been very frustrated with the standard response I've gotten that, well, this is generational. And as we educate kids, you know, the, 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 the kid that's in, in, you've got, I think you've got high school age kids right I do, now. You know? I do. And, and I can't say, well, let's wait until your kids get to decide what they want to do. And 20 years from now, maybe there'll be a good job waiting for them. That's not a satisfactory answer. So there's some, some very specific things that we can do uh, aggressively using the tools we've got. I, I did allude to a couple of those programs that we've got, the Cooperative Science Centers through the Educational Partnership Program, where we've got partnerships with more than two dozen historically black colleges and universities and minority serving institutes. And, and by last count, I think we've we've helped, we've assisted uh, in more than 2,000 degrees, uh, uh, college degrees and graduate degrees in the last 20 years. So that's part of it, accelerate those programs. We have direct hire authority for certain programs. Uh, my sense is we're not adequately exploiting that. So we could start turning the dial up on some of those things where we can bring people in aggressively. I also think that uh, we need to have a much more visible campaign. And we're trying to do that in terms of uh, we've got uh, a number of people from un or underrepresented communities that are doing extraordinary things within NOAA. Let's let the world know about that. So there's some, you know, some might call that marketing, but I think it's just making visible um, the, the opportunities uh, that are available to us. And there are uh, resources for dedicated programs along those lines. Um, the, the other thing I will say is we need to figure out how to engage in educational programs with the authorities that we've got. Other agencies, and I don't want to sound like I'm griping, it's just the fact. It's the fact that there are some agencies that specifically have authorized federal programs to uh, enhance recruitment and retention within un- and underrepresented uh, uh, groups of the population. Uh, we don't have all of those authorities, so we do a little bit of work around, but there are some authorities there that we could probably talk about building into the NOAA programs to allow, uh, allow us to do that some more. So programmatically, statutorily, uh, uh, I would say in terms of how we represent our, our agency and whom we hire are several other ways that we can do that. 
yeah, I really appreciate you sort of sharing that. Wow, we have to go. This is really the end. But before we get out of here, and I, I give uh, Dr. Spinrad the last word, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Brent White. Brent is a railroad, a railroad worker who has seen a tornado right above his town and is an avid storm follower. That's that's really cool. Thank you for your work on the railroad, Brent. Uh, had family members in that uh, industry for many years. Uh, if you think someone is deserving of our next Geek of the Week, be sure to follow our social media pages. And congratulations again, Brent. Rick, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. And I do look forward to seeing you in person here sometime soon. And it's been my pleasure engaging with Weather Geeks. Absolutely. And, and good luck. And if there's any way I can assist you, you know you know how to find me. Uh, thank you all for listening. This has been amazing. Uh, thank Dr. Spinrad for his time. Uh, getting to know administrator is a key uh, sort of uh, resource for this audience. And I hope you valued his uh, discussion. Uh, we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.